RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. This episode is also sponsored by Mint Mobile. Cut your wireless bill to as little as 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 357, The Quickening. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we explore the morals, meanings, and messages of each and every episode of Star Trek. This week, The Quickening. No, not the seminal classic sequel to the 1986 legendary cult classic Highlander. And a story far from immortality, far from it. This is an episode that addresses how we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life, wouldn't you say? But before we discuss death and life together, here are a few ways you can stay in touch with us. Wait, wait, wait. I'm just glad you got in a Highlander reference and a Kirk impression right at the top of the show. This Patreon is the Patreon show to listen to. <laughs> and here are those few ways you can get in touch with us. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323 522 5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And before we quickly go to trivia, let us tell you about one of our supporters this week, ExpressVPN. Yes, Norman and listeners, you have heard me talk about how important it is to have a VPN. And whether you're out or or as a lot of us are doing now, working from home, spending a lot of time on my home computer, uh, tablet, and phone, it is more important than ever to choose a VPN you trust. I mean, I, I think about it, it's not just the work that I have to do, but it's all the personal work I have to do as well, like paying bills and doing banking. Um, I'm not walking into a branch or uh, an ATM, so at least not as often. So I have to rely on a secure connection. So personally, uh, I do a lot of research on the sponsors that we have on this show. We don't accept sponsors who we don't personally use. So we can only recommend the brands to you that we believe in. So I can say with absolute confidence that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market. And there are a number of reasons why. Now, uh, I've talked about how easy it is to use their app uh, just to see right away if you're connected or not. We've talked about speed and how important that is that uh, your connection, your downloads don't slow down when you're connected. But here's one that I hadn't even thought of because I wasn't even aware of. ExpressVPN does not log your data. 
Now, I, I had no idea that other VPNs, some of the ones on the market that are really cheap, they actually log your data and then sell it to ad companies, which is shocking to me because I thought that was the whole point of having a VPN is to stop that from happening. So I'm very pleased to realize that ExpressVPN uses their technology to prevent that from happening. They call it trusted server and they make it impossible for their servers to log any of your info. And look, you don't just have to take my word for it. Uh, Wired, CNET, The Verge, so many other tech publications rate ExpressVPN as the number one VPN in the world. And I've also been using ExpressVPN exclusively, John, because of its ease of use and because its application immediately tells you whether or not you're connected, so you can keep track of that at a moment's notice. So protect yourself with the VPN that we use and trust Use our link at expressvpn.com slash mission log today and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log. Visit expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. And now, the other trivia doctor on the Roddenberry Network, not named Larry Nemechek. Here's John Champion with this week's trivia. Well, thank you for that, Norman. I will quickly get to the trivia for the quickening. Now, remember on the last episode, I mentioned that this was shot before To the Death. So here we are, uh, reverse order again <laughs> with the quickening. This was written by Naren Shankar. We haven't talked too much lately about Naren. You may remember that he's one of those people who benefited from that open submission policy on NextGen and found himself with an internship during the fourth season. He stuck around quite a bit, earning himself a staff position. On DS9, he has just two story credits, though, Babel in season one and this one. It's interesting that Naren gets the credit here. The idea for the show originated with Ira Stephen Bear, he was looking for a story that would serve as an allegory for the AIDS epidemic, specifically because they had recently lost a staff member to the disease, and Ira's wife happened to be involved in AIDS activism. Naren took the basic outline, and elements of the story changed over time, of course. Part of that reason was that Rene Echeverria also had his hand in the show, but he does not get a credit here for his rewrite. This was directed by Rene Aubergenois. Here we are in the middle of Rene's run as a director on DS9. The most recent of his that we discussed was Hippocratic Oath. When we talked about Rene's first directing role, we talked about how he kind of hated it. Huge stresses, incredibly difficult work. This episode was extremely challenging. His first time directing on location for one thing, but he really took to it. He felt better prepared and more in control, but of course there were things that he couldn't control, like that location. Very interesting location here to depict the exteriors of the devastated Teplin homeworld. That was shot in Ventura County at the Santa Susana Field Laboratory. It's not terribly far, about a 40-minute drive northwest of Los Angeles. This is a place that was used for testing rockets, and even some nuclear devices decades ago. There was, in fact, a partial meltdown there in 1959. It's been an environmental and political hot potato for years, and only in May of 2020 was an agreement made to have the buildings that are there removed to prevent future environmental hazards. 
So, when they were shooting DS9, that was the exterior location, and wouldn't you know it, they had torrential rain which destroyed set pieces, and they lost three days while those were being rebuilt. He also had 70 extras. It was a big scope for Renee or any director to deal with on a TV schedule. Let's talk about guest stars. Well, we meet a few Teplins, as you would imagine, in this story. There's Epron, played by Dylan Haggerty. He started his career in the early 90s, so this episode was shot when he only had a few big credits under his belt. In addition to TV, Dylan has had some roles in features like The Postman and Con Air. Ikoria, who is first to befriend Dr. Bashir, is played by Ellen Wheeler. What an interesting career in TV for Ellen, who, like many actors, starts out with guest roles that led to recurring roles. She was on the early 90s reboot of Dark Shadows, and then she ends up with a sizable number of appearances on soap operas like Guiding Light, As the World Turns, and The Bold and the Beautiful... As this is coming along, she then makes the transition to a director on As the World Turns and director and producer of The Guiding Light. So it isn't just Star Trek that nurtures its talented actors into directors and producers. Finally, Trevian is played by Michael Sazarin. As a young actor in the 1960s, he was able to bounce around TV and small features. In 1969, he co-starred with Jane Fonda in the Sidney Pollock film They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, which may have a thematic similarity to today's episode of DS9. While he didn't become a household name after that film, Michael worked non-stop. TV includes the Ray Bradbury Theater, The Outer Limits remake from the 90s, La Femme Nikita TV series... And he was even in the 1976 precursor to the Cannonball Run called the Gumball Rally. Sadly, we lost Michael in 2011. John, I have one small observation to make about your trivia. Sure. So aside from our man Bashir, the two heavier Dr. Bashir episodes have been directed by Renee. Hippocratic Oath and now Hear the Quickening. Is that kismet? (laughs) <laughs> I, I I think it is. I think it absolutely or is. Or did he just like bossing around uh, Alexander? <laughs> Maybe just, he took that, ooh, ooh, there, there's a heavy Alexander Siddig episode. I'll grab that one. Let's, let's be pushy. <laughs> I'm told that there can be only one Highlander gag in this episode, and I think that was just it. Prologue. In Deep Space Nine's wardroom, Quark, escorted by Odo, is bewildered as to why he was summoned. Major Kira happily jogs Quark's memory by playing his illegal, albeit catchy, commercial for his bar. Not only is what Quark did a Class Three offense, but even worse, crossed a line as Worf's prune juice from the USS Defiance replicator came complete with a Quark's branded and jingle-playing mug. Needless to say... Kira promises Quark that if things aren't back to normal when she returns from the Gamma Quadrant, she will go to Quark's and will have what she considers fun. Later on a runabout passing through the wormhole into the Gamma Quadrant, a quite literally starstruck and chipper Dr. Bashir, along with Lieutenant Dax and Major Kira, are heading towards their biosurvey mission as they intercept a distress signal from the Telpin system near the edge of known Dominion space. 
Dax and Bashir beam down to the source of the signal and find a city in decay, strewn with a seemingly shiftless population. Upon closer examination, they discover that these people have been infected by a disease which marks them with a spidery blue lesion. Suddenly, a woman rushes towards them, covered by an inflamed spidery red lesion, and begs to be taken to someone named Trevian. As Bashir administers a painkiller to the infected woman, a bystander kneels next to him and tells him that this disease, this blight, has quickened in her, and for Bashir to leave immediately and forget this place. Act 1. Bashir informs Dax that the painkiller he gave the infected woman isn't working, and deduces that this woman's physiology is so different that he and Dax are most likely safe from this blight. And, while Julian was otherwise engaged, Dax managed to trade her hairpin for transportation to Trevian and the hospital. As Dax and Bashir carry their patient into a very unhospital-like atmosphere, they observe several small huddled groups surrounding one person with red lesions and holding a large golden goblet. One of the nearby attendants identifies the woman Dax and Bashir brought here as Norva, who he says has quickened and must be taken to Trevian. As Trevian enters the main gathering area, one of the quickened thanked Trevian for allowing him to sleep in a decent bed, eat a decent meal, bathe in hot water, and even wear clean clothes. It was everything he wanted, and for that, this man drank deeply from his golden goblet. Trevian then turns to Bashir and Dax and tells them that Norva didn't make it, and if she had arrived sooner, he could have helped her, but in a way that confuses Bashir as Trevian explains that the blight is always fatal. As Bashir explains that he's a doctor and has access to advanced medical equipment, Trevian also shares a similar story. He and his people were once sophisticated, ambitious, and even tried to defy the Dominion, which was met with swift retribution as the Jem'Hadar raised their planet and infected them with the Blight, an incurable disease that they are now born with and can die from at any moment. And as Trevian warns them to leave, the man who had thanked him moments earlier falls to the ground in convulsions. Bashir is prohibited from helping him, and is appalled to learn that those whose blight has quickened to come to Trevian to die for the pain to be brief and be surrounded by friends and loved ones during their final moments, which are ushered along from a combination of herbs they ingest from those golden goblets. After Dax discovers the mysterious distress beacon, Bashir resolves himself to leave, only to be stopped by a pregnant woman named Akoria, who believes he is there to help them, both her and her people and her unborn child. Suddenly and without warning, Kira contacts the away team and tells them two Jem'Hadar ships are heading towards them. Act 2 According to the runabout sensors, Kira and Dax both confirmed that the Jem'Hadar ships are on what appeared to be a patrol route and heading towards them. Kira prepares to leave, but Julian objects as these blight-infected people need his medical services. Kira believes that returning to Deep Space Nine and preparing a fully staffed relief mission would be the best way to help these people. However, Julian thinks it would take too much time, and that he can at least attempt to find a cure, providing that he can do so in a week, which is as long as Kira will wait for them, hidden in the Jankata Nebula. Armed with as many provisions as they can carry, Dax and Bashir are taken in by Akoria to set up a makeshift medical clinic. While clearing some space, Dax comes upon a painting— done by Akoria's husband, of a far more hopeful vision of their world, and with a larger version of it on a nearby building to be an inspiration to others. With all of the equipment in place, all the doctor needs now is a patient, who hasn't yet quickened. Akoria volunteers, and he examines her. He shows her a picture of his baby on his medical tricorder, upon which Akoria stares in wonder. 
Not long after they started their analysis, Bashir and Dax isolate the virus and can start working on a cure. Filled with hope, Akoria offers both of them food from the stores that she was saving for her death. She tells them she feels she doesn't need it any longer. Bashir now needs new tissue samples from those who have quickened. As he walks among the infected, he bumps into a familiar face. Eprin, the man who tried to warn him off earlier, who has now quickened. Bashir fuses and heals a young boy's broken arm, trying to prove to Eprin and to all of them that he has the technology that can help them. But as Trevian arrives on the scene, he warns Bashir that others have promised cures and stirred up hope, only to have stripped them away from their possessions and the trust of a dying people. And Trevian warns Bashir that the punishment for inciting false hope makes the blight look like a blessing. Act 3 Back in his makeshift clinic, Bashir is both frustrated and exhausted with his lack of progress. Akoria tells him that perhaps he should leave, because no matter his efforts to find a cure, her culture actually looks forward to and worships death. But Akoria admits that ever since she became pregnant, she no longer anticipates her eventual visit to Trevian. She wants to live long enough to see her baby born, to grow up, and to be there for all of those special moments. With any luck, Bashir says, you'll see him have children of his own. And suddenly, Dax interrupts as she escorts a group of volunteers led by Eprin, who tells Bashir, I've canceled my death for you. I was really looking forward to it. With so many new volunteers suffering from various stages of the blight, Bashir trains Akoria in the use of a hypospray, but he doesn't tell her that it contains a possible antigen against the blight. A blind test to see who will respond first, not knowing that their medication could hold the cure. Also, Dax informs Bashir that Eprin has stopped responding to Cordrazine for the pain and that she has placed him in an inhibitor field. While outside on his break, Akoria brings something for him to drink and tells Bashir that Eprin's white blood cell count increased by 12% and compliments her on her good bedside manner. Bashir explains that her kindness is a gift that helps distract patients from their own mortality. Akoria soberly reminds him that no matter how many times you chase death away, Death comes to everyone eventually. Except for Kukulaka, that is. Dr. Bashir's first immortal patient, his teddy bear. Bashir and Akoria are soon interrupted by Dax, who rushes them both back into the tent as Eprin starts violently convulsing. Act 4 Covered with entirely new red lesions and increasing pain, Bashir realizes that Eprin's virus has suddenly mutated, Using a microcellular scanner to discover the source and seeing the violent reaction of the lesions from the scanner, Bashir is seized with terror, realizing that the EM fields from his instruments are the cause. Suddenly, patient after patient in Bashir's hospital cry out in terrible pain. Bashir cries out to Dax and Akoria to shut everything down. However, the damage has been done as Eprin dies in painful agony. Unwilling to admit defeat, Bashir manically applies CPR to save Eprin, but is stopped by Dax knowing that Eprin is already gone. Hearing about what has happened, Trevian arrives to administer his treatment for those who are crying out to him to end their agony. Bashir tries to intervene, but swallows his pride and stands aside, allowing Trevian to offer comfort to his people as he has always done so before Bashir arrived. The next day, Bashir stands among the covered bodies of the people he failed to save. Dax tries to console him, but it's no use, as Bashir has already succumbed to the fact that his pride and arrogance caused this to happen. Dax offers Bashir some perspective, telling him that maybe he was arrogant to try, but that doesn't mean if he cannot find a cure that one doesn't exist. 
With his head hanging low, Bashir takes to walking the streets, only to be met with angry and a glaring crowd, muttering insults and spitting at his feet. Ignoring their spite, he comes across Akoria's husband's mural as she approaches him from behind, covered with red lesions. She thanks him for giving her hope, believing that she would have been able to give birth to her child, but is resolved to seek out Trevian and to end her suffering. But Bashir is not willing to give up on her. Although Kira has returned to collect them, Dax prepares to go, but Bashir chooses to stay and help until he finds a cure and will contact the station when he has done so. Act 5. No longer able to absorb any more cordrazine to stave off her agonizing pain for fear of harming the baby, Akoria agrees to forego it altogether. However, there is a silver lining of hope as Bashir informs her that he could induce labor so that she could safely give birth in two weeks if he can keep her alive and if she can endure the pain. Sometime later, Trevian visits Akoria and offers her a peaceful death for her and her unborn child, but she refuses, wanting so desperately for a chance for her baby to live. Trevian admits to Bashir that he has a strange obsession with death, having survived the blight for so long, and knowing the only thing he can do is to help his people end their suffering. Two weeks have finally passed, and Akoria has given birth to a blightless, lesion-free baby boy. Bashir realizes that his antigens were absorbed through the placenta and immunized him to the disease. Not necessarily a cure, but an unexpected vaccine. Knowing that her son will live a life free from the blight, she frees herself from the pain and struggle and dies, leaving behind an emotionally distraught Bashir holding her son. Bashir reports his discovery to Trevian and tells him that all pregnant women must be given the antigen immediately to inoculate their babies. As Trevian promises to bear this new responsibility, he allows Akoria's baby to be seen by all as a symbol of hope that they so desperately needed. Back on Deep Space Nine, Captain Sisko visits Bashir and offers what comfort he can. And even though the captain means well, acknowledging that at least future generations of this blight-stricken people will be spared, Bashir will always be haunted by the fact that in some small way, he was unable to do more for them. The end. Right off the bat, I gotta say, advertising the future. I I love it. I don't I don't love the prospect of advertising in another three hundred years that it will still be with us. But I I just I love this little nod to it because, look, in the thirty years of Star Trek up to this point in Star Trek's history. I, maybe, you know, people have had preferences for certain things, but we don't see any brands and we certainly don't see any ads. And it's interesting you compare that to a show like Firefly, where the ads are just part of the fabric of that universe. Mm-hmm. So it, just really out of step and really fun to see Quark's obnoxious ads and and the singing coffee mug i think i need to have one i'm a little disappointed that in all the years going to conventions and uh collecting star trek stuff that i've never seen a quark singing coffee mug as yogurt said in space balls merchandising merchandising (laughs) yes (laughs) yes a singing coffee mug the ultimate marketing tool for your morning beverage Yes, yes, the ultimate. Man, uh, very impressive exteriors and matte paintings. I mean, I I talked about the location and the trivia, but just to say that it's really mostly very effective here, that huge scene right when they first beam down, Mm -hmm. a lot of matte painting going on. uh, But yeah, just wow, what what a place to be able to film. 
Um, but I do, I'm sort of entertained that there's a few times in the episode where the Teplins will say to Dax or to Bashir, like, oh, you guys are from another world, huh? Okay. <laughs> I mean, like, like, even if this is your life and even if there are other things going on, I, I just think that if I were, like, at home and even if I knew that beings from other worlds existed, even if I knew that because the, this society was warp capable, mm-hmm. they had gone to other planets yep. in their past, I would still just be like, oh, yeah, things are going to hell around me, but hey, there's somebody from another world here. Can we stop and talk about that for a second? Right, right. You know, and this is kind of like a a contrivance that we've accepted with Star Trek over the course of so many seasons and so many series Mm -hmm. that once somebody from the Federation beams down to another planet, their, their badge automatically translates their language, even though it hasn't had a chance to right. dissect the the syntax of their it. language yeah. and learn it, <laughs> but again, in, in the uh, in the advent of just saving time, we all just accept that wholesale. It's like as I brought up Highlander at the very beginning of the show. For some reason, the writers in the series of Highlander just completely, you know, just disassociated reality with carrying a sword around in a I don't know. <laughs> I'm wearing a t-shirt and shorts and all of a sudden I can pull a, you know, two foot claymore from behind my back. <laughs> right. I just got it. You just yeah. have to get to the, you have to use it as the exposition to get to the fight. You know, I understand that. Right. Um, totally. But the one thing though that I found interesting is that as soon as, as Bashir uh, sees, um, was it Norva? Mm-hmm. He automatically gives her a painkiller regardless of understanding her physiology. Right. And, yes. and, I guess you could see two different sides of this equation. Either he can do nothing and watch her suffer or try something and possibly kill her or possibly save her. That's, that's a choice that doctors have to triage in a way. But it's just even before he uses a tricorder, a medical tricorder to scan her physiology, he's jumping in there with a hypo spray. So I'm going to give you something for the pain. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on a second. <laughs> what if that causes pain? Yeah, it's like, I, I, I have allergies. <laughs> I have allergies. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and to that point, you know, Eprin says to him at some point, like, oh, I guess the virus doesn't like your blood. Well, and your blood doesn't like any of these cures and may not like any of the painkillers or anything else either. We're making a lot of assumptions That's right. going into this, yeah. you know. Yeah. But it is incredible what Starfleet Medical can do. Like, I love all the equipment that they bring down. I love, I love seeing him beam down with all these boxes and containers and stuff. And they're there, um, and they've got everything out on the table. And it, they've had their first breakthrough. And Bashir's excited. He says to Dax, like, hey, can you run a protein sequencer? And, and I love her just, like, right away, like, yeah, because literally all she does is pushes <laughs> a button and then yellow lights flash. Yep. Like, at that rate, I can run a protein sequencer, okay? Yeah. So anybody, literally anybody can run one. The funny thing about that scene is that you have literally, like, a science officer who has spent several lifetimes and has all this experience behind her. It's like, can you run the mm-hmm. protein sequencer? I think I can do that. Yeah, I got two hands. Yeah. You know? I, I, can, I can handle that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what I exactly. loved about uh, Z- uh, Dax, though, in, in all of her dealings with not just Bashir, but with the people? She's almost kind of like a, uh, an intermediary between fearing the technology that Bashir is talking about because he's only talking about it in medical terms. And this is something that's mm-hmm. actually prevalent in medicine today is that doctors usually talk to patients in a way that patients don't understand 
their medical terminology, which makes families or the patients themselves a little bit more skeptical or fearful of the treatments. Right. Right, right. But what I love about Dax is she's like, she understands. She she knows from her various lifetimes that this is how you talk to people. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, that's a good point. These yeah. are good ideas. You know, he's like, well, once we, you know, isolate the base pairing sequences, then we can find a proper way to isolate the antigen. Is that good? Yes, that's good. That's all you need <laughs> to say. Right? Right. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Love that. And, you know, by the way, it's a, a shout out to Cordrazine, the miracle drug that just keeps coming back. You can't keep a good drug down in the world of Star Trek. We have had it literally since season one of TOS. So I'm, I'm glad to see that uh, always make a return appearance. Isn't the overdose of Cordrazine what makes McCoy go crazy? Bingo! Very good. Yeah. Very good. It's a good thing they didn't have that same reaction uh, with the Teplins. Murderers! <laughs> like, Here, take a shot of cor- Assassins! Cor- I won't let you Whoa! get me! <laughs> I have a question for you, and I have a question for all of our listeners, because mm-hmm. this is something that I've never heard of before. I actually went Google food it, and I didn't really get mm-hmm. the answer that I wanted to get. What exactly is an inhibitor field? What does it inhibit? <laughs> It it is a yes it is a field which inhibits. Mm-hmm. It's mm. it's like you drop in a piece of technology. I would have liked to see look does it inhibit pain? I have to assume that since Eprin can't absorb any more cordrazine, sure that Dax uses the inhibitor field to inhibit maybe nerve impulses or the way that sure. nerves you know they send pain signals through the body. But it's just like just need a you know for a, for a show that's very heavy on techno babble. Needed a little bit more techno babble. Mm. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, uh, 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 turn on the neural pain inhibitor field device mm-hmm. function plus one. <laughs> that's, yeah, because oh, yeah. that was a great idea just to be able to you know, block all the pain receptors in his body that the cortisone can't take care of. Right. Boom. Yes. Done. Boom. There you go. There you go. There was one question because like if I do the math. So at first, Bashir says, leave us there for a week. And then a week goes by and he's just like, no, I'm staying. It'll be like a month or, or however long that he's down there. Because remember, he's got to give four weeks for Akoria's child to be born. So he's there at least another month. So six weeks or, or at least five weeks he's been away from DS9, not to mention the mission prior to that. So... What happens on DS9 while he's gone for that long? Like, do, does Cisco send out a memo like, nobody gets sick because um, just just don't. <laughs> We're going to have problems. You know, that, that's, a, that's funny that you bring that up because I kept thinking we never really see like a staff there in MedLab. It, it's never crowded. It's never. It's usually just him, and it's a pretty small room. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. the station that has all of these different alien races going to and fro, bringing in whatever strange ailments that they have, either in, through cargo or not being quarantined properly or not being, you know, uh, disinfected properly. Mm-hmm. As we all know yeah. that you know we're we're suffering through the COVID situation right yeah. now. But yeah, you would think that. Somewhere along the line, and maybe they have, I just don't remember, but 
but they would have kind of like Dr. Bashir's version of like Nurse Ogawa that helped but, crush her. But we, I think we saw twice, maybe twice, uh, Jabara, Jabara, uh, a Bajoran nurse okay were, but literally like twice i think in the entire thing he he needs a staff yeah because you've got so many aliens coming in and out of ds9 dude needs help well i mean like uh, taking this into consideration and just assuming the fact that cortrazine would work on some alien species that's never had cortrazine before <laughs> we would have to make that same assumption that there's a staff on deep space nine okay yeah I, i'm good with that <laughs> Is this episode about the quickening or the sickening? Doctors Champion and La Query the Medical Database. We will quickly get back to the quickening, but first, a word from Mint Mobile. Norman, I have a question for you. Do you remember when you bought your first cell phone for yourself? I think I bought my first cell phone. It was the classic Nokia cell phone Ooh, me too me too i bought a nokia and i had to go to one of those like you know big cell stores and then that one turned into one of the major wireless providers and i i kept like getting bounced around because they changed and and the thing is they changed but i didn't and i realized i just sort of resigned myself that my bill was going to be like a hundred bucks a month. I just thought that, mm -hmm. that, that that's what it was. I imagine your experience was the same thing. You got this phone, and then you just sort of live with the idea that your bill is going to be extraordinary. Am yeah, I here, right? Here's the phone. Here's the contract. Uh, change your personal budget. You can't afford that you know, sandwich mm -hmm. or you know, five <laughs> right. Starbucks lattes if you, you know, to pay for your cell phone bill. But no, I mean, all joking aside, yeah. I mean, you, you kind of resign yourself to the fact that this thing has a budget, and you're going to pay to play. I want to say that my I probably bought my first cell phone like 20 years ago. And if you add that up, if I had stuck with that same plan, averaging for myself 100 bucks a month for 20 years, I do not even want to think about what I could have bought with that. You could have that's bought a cell why, phone today. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. So that's why I love that we have been introduced to Mint Mobile and have both been using Mint Mobile uh, because this this is a discovery that there is an option out there to get premium service, the same service that I've been using, that I've been used to at a tiny slice of that cost. So I could cut my wireless bill down to 15 bucks a month and, and literally save hundreds of dollars a year by switching to Mint Mobile. So that's what I did. And for anyone out there like me who's looking to save without sacrificing service, switching Mint Mobile is a no-brainer. So for customers that hate their wireless bill or are just looking at the cost and thinking, I need to get out of this, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. And here's the great part about it. Uh, you go online, you eliminate all those costs that are what the other retailers are charging you. So the big box stores, everything else, they're charging you for their marketing. Your plans come with unlimited nationwide talk and crazy fast 4G LTE. You get to use your own phone. You get to keep your number. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile will cover you with a seven-day money-back guarantee. So switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless for 15 bucks a month. 
Now, John, uh, you work hard for your money. I work hard. A lot of you out there work hard, and your money should go and stretch as far as you can make it stretch, especially in this day and age and especially in the state of uh, the economy. So make sure that you're making your money work as hard for you as you can. Make sure it, it stretches for you as far as you can. And to do that, you can get a new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get that plan shipped to your door for free. Go to mintmobile.com slash mission log. That's mintmobile.com slash mission log. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. All right, Norman, we've had our fun with the quickening, talking about, oh, Cordrazine and Cork's face on a coffee mug, but um, there's more to it than that. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to kick us off here and let's talk about the important aspects to the quickening. I think one of probably the most obvious points to be made about this episode is the, the principle of euthanasia in the 24th century, because that's exactly what Trevian is doing. And he's offering a service to his people before they suffer horribly from an incurable disease. And now we, we know the stigma behind, say, celebrity types of these, uh, these faith healers or doctors, um, you know, Dr. Kevorkian being probably the most notable or notorious, depending on how you look. Mm-hmm. But there is something to be said about, one, taking a look at it from a 24th century standpoint, uh, and two, why is, say, medicinal, the a medicinal application of trying to alleviate a patient's pain and suffering why is that any better than, say, a more rudimentary way of doing it and just allowing them to be treated with something that lets them go peacefully? One of the things that, I guess, uh, comes into play here, I mean, aside from the euthanasia aspect, is the general kind of respect and understanding of different uh, faith healing or medicinal practices. And th- this is coming from the son of a doctor. You're the son of a doctor, John. Mm-hmm. And we know that there are certain things that doctors have to abide by, but I do believe that all doctors follow the Hippocratic Oath. And like I said, I I brought this earlier up. Um, Like I said, I brought this up earlier that Rene directed Hippocratic Oath, and he directed this, which is strange. But we are looking at the evolution of Dr. Bashir and what he has learned during this entire time. And you would think that he would embrace different faith-based healing practices, but it seems that maybe it's the way that he was trained. Maybe it's Starfleet. He just doesn't see what Trevian's doing as being valid. And that's where the argument of euthanasia versus medicinal science in the 24th century really comes into play here. Yeah. I'm so glad that you brought this up. I mean, how could we not? I thought this is one of the most interesting aspects of the show here. Uh, because it seemed like there was a conversation that they almost had, but not quite. Trevian's defense of what he was doing, I thought, was really clear, really impassioned, and really logical. Just saying, like, this this is what I offer to them. It, it's peace. It's comfort. It's also inevitable. And what we didn't have was Dr. Bashir really, truly trying to understand that and and any sort of gentle way expressing his point of view. 
So I think we can understand walking into a situation, if you were to put yourself in Dr. Bashir's shoes, walk into a place where you see people suffering and you want to help. That is the impulse. And you see people dying and thinking, oh, this is wrong. They shouldn't be dying. I can help them get out of the way and let me help them. But there mm -hmm. wasn't the sort of uh, personal or cultural understanding of, uh, of what was going on. Uh, so it seemed like that, that was a deeper conversation to have, maybe if you know, they didn't have to cut time for commercials or something. Wait, 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 wait. The commercials are important. Remember, well, if, not, <laughs> if not for commercials, we don't get singing coffee mugs. Oh, that is true. That is very, very true. Yeah. yeah. But I want to put it to you this way. The, the thing that I found that was so tragic about the, the Teplin's life is that they had resigned themselves to death. So they had, for 200 years, gotten themselves into a pattern. They literally just sort of evolved their culture to accept this death. And their only, seemingly, their, their only sort of control over it was this herb to make it as painless as possible at the end. So they sort of end up in this place where it feels like to me they're actively campaigning against the hope of anything else. And, and it sort of shows what happens when a whole culture buys into this. I, I, who was it that said in the show? Is it Ikora uh, uh, who said, we worship death? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that sort of meant to make us say like, oh, well, yeah, Trevian thinks he's doing the right thing. And on some level he is. And as somebody who personally believes in the right to die and to make it humane and painless and accessible, uh, but careful, you know, th these are all important aspects of that. I couldn't help but also feel a little bit of horror in in what was happening there. And maybe it wasn't so much just, uh, like I said, Bashir jumping in to force something on them where he, he really had no right or place to do that, at least not in the way that he did. But it was because to me, this whole culture had absorbed this tragedy and for generations just resigning themselves to this singular future for everyone. Here's another Highlander reference I'm going to bring up. I should never have <laughs> talked about that at the, at the beginning. But, you know, we're dealing with, with really uh, serious aspects of, of understanding kind of like sickness, death, uh, mortality, immortality. And one of the things in Highlander that uh, one of the immortals, and it's very ironic when this particular immortal, Mythos, says that Mythos is 5,000 years old. 5,000 years old. And he's still terrified of dying tomorrow. Hmm. Um, you can die in Highlander by having your head severed from your body. That's, right. that's the yeah. lore. Everyone knows right. that. But think about it this way. When he thinks about death, he only thinks about it from the immortal way. When he applies it to uh, the mortal people that he knows, he's like, you're all dying. From the very moment that you are conceived, you are dying. Right? Life has, mortal life has a, a life cycle, regardless of disease or tragedy, accidents, any outside or external influence, you are still 
at the rate of cellular decay from when you become cellular life. That's just the way the science works. So whether it's 10 years of age or whether it's 100 years of age, we are all quickened as soon as we are mm. alive. And that, that's an interesting, uh, the, the interesting part of this title is that in, in various fandoms, the start of life is quickening. The beginning of life is when you're quickened. Right. Um, for vampires, it's when they turn. Uh, for certain um, fantasy beings, it's when they, they become a spiritual essence. You know, but you're quickened at the point. That's the point of inception of, of life. And maybe for this species, they, they see it in the opposite direction. It's like, you know, we can only really become or we can only really live again once we pass this painful, agony-ridden mortal plane. We become something better. And that's something that I wish they spent some time on is the spirituality of what happens after they quicken if they go to a different place, a better place. That's something that's not really addressed here. But that's... That's the concept of the cycle of life is that we're all going to one day, like, uh, like Akoria said, we, you can't evade death, mm-hmm. right? Eventually, that's going to happen. It's going to come for you. So it, this kind of brings me up to my next point is that with science, are we just finding ways to, to delay it? And should it be delayed? Because sometimes the science turns somebody into an experiment to find ways to delay death. But what does that do to the person? Right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and look, Star Trek has, in many instances over its course, and, and more that we'll get to in the future, has sort of looked at that question about uh humanity's relationship to science and very often particularly with life prolongation and very often in star trek it, it is looked at as something you should not do you know do not mess with mother nature when it comes to that although we are shown in star trek humans living beyond 120 years and not just lifespan but health span being increased dramatically so I, as a pure science, yes, I, I think that life and health prolongation are things that should absolutely be explored to to the farthest possible reaches. But as an applied science, um, there is a uh, there's an ethical humanistic question at play here. Um, do people have do people have the the knowledge to consent intelligently to something that may have a more negative side effect than than what they want mm-hmm. I mean, essentially is what you're saying yeah you know i mean look I, if i'm being purely selfish about it if somebody had the opportunity to uh, to test something on me that might increase my lifespan and my health along with it for 20 years beyond the average sign me up sign me up i'm there now there might be a side effect there there might be many side effects and as long as you're aware of what the what those potentials are what the uh what the percentage of the emergence of those side effects are you have to make a you and the doctor would have to make 
some sort of call on that. You know, Bashir walks into the situation saying, like, I can help you. I, I might be able to help you. Let me do something easy, first of all, by, you know, stitching this kid's broken bone. I think he's relatively clear that there aren't guarantees. But boy, he's awfully optimistic about it. He's mm -hmm. terribly optimistic about it. And those poor souls who lined up for the first part of the experiment, well, you know, we, we, we saw what happened and the others saw what happened as well. And rightfully, they're horrified by it. At the same time, he learned. He learned and he moved on to the next thing. You know, mm. you don't get to do the next thing unless you learn from from the mistake. True. I do. <laughs> I am a little hesitant to truly agree with that just because <laughs> just because, again, to my point. Yeah. At whose cost did he learn? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I completely understand that if you give full consent to say, try this on me. I understand the consequences and you and your doctor, your physician are both on the same page. I think that's fantastic and you should try and do what is right for you and your life. But I do believe that in this episode, much like a snake oil salesman, Bashir's enthusiasm and positivity unfairly influences this people because they are so desperate for something to happen. And I think that again, I'm I'm kind of leading you into <laughs> <laughs> what I, I want look, you to get look, to uh, next. Okay. B Bashir, he is full of hubris, absolutely, and and I feel that you're lulled into it with the way, way the script is written. You're right there with him. Hey, look at this thing we did on another planet. It took us an hour to wipe out this plague. And boom, we, we vaccinated all these people by just making sure that their water had this vaccine in it and they are fine. Um, and, and literally I, I love how sort of within Star Trek, it's not just the story, but within the production of Star Trek, we're all sitting there as audience members going, Oh yeah. Dr. McCoy always does it in less than an hour because the show's only an hour long. Of course, that's how it works on Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Um, so it became its own trope, and here's DS9. I, I like it in this way, giving credit to the trope and criticizing it a wee bit, but not just completely tearing it apart the way that DS9 does with some other Star Trek tropes. Um, it, it was on purpose. Look, it was Rene Echeverria's idea to do that. And, um, and, and I feel like they... They even drive it home by that sort of bittersweet ending as well. By saying the work still goes on. We, we don't just get to solve a thing and walk away. Bashir has this very interesting line. He says, when you make someone well, it's like you're chasing off death, making him wait for another day. And that speaks to the power that he thinks that he has. And up until now, he's had a good amount of power. He's had a pretty high success rate. Yeah. With what he's done. Yeah. And and I, I do like that the show puts us in his shoes. We we're we're sort of sympathetically bound to his journey in that respect. Yeah, and I, I like that too. I mean like you know, there's obviously there's a, a certain hubris that doctors have, and especially when you're as talented and as as successful as 
as he is, aside from the you know pre-ganglionic fiber, post-ganglionic nerve issue. But <laughs> that I mean, old thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's. I mean you're like I said, you're you're, you're literally flipping a coin between valedictorian and salutatorian. Yeah. So yeah, you're really smart. <laughs> but that that kind of that kind of blinds him sometimes. I think in a way, and you know, going all the way back to Hippocratic Oath to. If I have the technology and the intelligence, I should therefore be able to heal. And if I cannot heal, then there is something wrong with the process, but it's not necessarily me. Right? Well, that, well, look, look at it this way, though. Bashir is the first person in 200 years who has come along with even the belief that it's something that could be done. And that's the only person mm-hmm. who will be able to make it happen. Oh, I, maybe not yeah. him, maybe not, maybe not Bashir. And it might take another 200 years and it might take, you know, a whole team of other doctors, but it, it, it's only the ones who think that it can be done, mm-hmm. who will ultimately succeed in making it happen. But I think where Bashir is in the wrong here is thinking that it can be done according to his timeline. Yes. Right? So that's the real issue here is that he isn't even really considering working with uh, Trevan to help these people either suffer less as he's working through the data because he just completely dismisses the fact that Trevan calls himself a healer but he's not healing anybody, but he's only, yeah. but that's to Dr. Bashir's Starfleet medical terminology and standards and ethics, right? Sometimes the body can't be healed. It's the spirit that needs to be healed. It's the essence of the person that needs to be healed before they move on. If a person, you know, if they physically cannot revive from healing, that's one thing. But if they are sliding into a, into a demise that cannot be avoided, you can give them spiritual peace before the end and yeah. not go through what Ephraim did because he suffered horribly because Bashir's pride got in the way. And that's not how you treat a patient, right? That's, not, that's, that's how you treat the data for the next diagnosis. I agree. It, it's it's like treating a math problem. I mean, sure, there 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 has to be a certain yeah. level of dispassion yeah, yeah. to it. Yeah. But at the same time, though, again, the, the the one big issue that I have with the way that Bashir addressed it at the beginning was that he completely disregarded what Trevan was doing because it had nothing to do with science. It had nothing to do with technology. It had nothing to do with actual results. But it doesn't have to all the time, right? And that's the side he didn't see. Now that we've looked at all the symptoms, it's time to see if we can come up with a sound diagnosis. So, John, as we always do at the end of every mission log, we take a look at the morals and meanings and messages, and believe you me, or believe you you, we have a lot to discuss, because this is a pretty severe episode when it comes to morals, meanings, and messages. So, what do you think? How did it affect you, and what do you have to say? Oh, man. All right. Well, let's... 
I kind of want to break this down easily uh, because my understanding is that uh, this is, uh, for good reasons, a very popular, very well-received, well-respected episode. I guess I just gave it away right there, what I'm about to say. Um, I think this is going to be a unique mission log for me, one of those unique episodes. There's so much I like here, uh, truly. And we've talked about some of it. I think there's even more we could talk about if we just had unlimited time here. Uh, And we will wrap it up with the morals, meanings, and messages in a second. But, But I have to talk about the production for a moment. It is ambitious, we talked about how there's a lot of location shooting. There are a lot of sets, costumes, extras. Um, there is a deep dive focus into one character, which I really enjoy most of the time. And they've done a pretty good job on this show, and particularly with Bashir lately, like in Our Man Bashir, Hippocratic Oath. What it, you know, it, they're just showing us that Sid can carry an episode as well as anyone. Um, they definitely get that across here. But here's where I'm going to say the thing that may not add up for some of you. So bear with me if you would. This episode is produced well, but overall, I don't think it's a great production. Um, I, I think the beats in the script are a little paint by numbers. You can see pretty much everything coming before it happens. It's also visually a bit of a mess. Uh, it's very dark. And the fact that this is in standard def, it does not help, does not do any favors to this production. You lose a lot of detail that really should be there. The makeup is very inconsistent from being realistic and terrifying to being quick and cheap. Interestingly, some of those really grotesque makeups, like uh, when they're actually dying and, and skin is flaking off, that was added digitally. And that was a very early version of doing that uh, with an early version of motion capture. Um, very common today, but but not so much then. So that's the bad news. <laughs> I, I, and, and we, I've said it before on the show many times that when we ask, does a production hold up? That is a purposely very vague question to ask because this gives us a chance to talk about an overall impression, something that worked, something that didn't work. It's not, we're not chasing after like a hard rating here to say this one works, but this one doesn't because of this number of things. No, no, no. This is our opportunity to sort of play fast and loose with what that means to us. This production actually doesn't hold up for me. Even though I love the places that it goes, I love the story that it's trying to tell. I love the character story it's trying to tell. I love the really difficult issues it's trying to bring up. And and I might even surprise you with a moral or meaning or message or two here that actually work really well for me. But it doesn't hold up for me as a show. How about you, Norman? I mean, I really don't have a lot to add to it because I, I do agree with a lot of what you're saying here. And I think that one of the things that, that took away from kind of one of the most impactful scenes was the fact that it was so uh, filmed so dark and so muddy. And you're right, standard definition didn't really do a lot of favors for uh, the, the scene in the hospital um, during the hospital crisis when, you know, Epram goes into a seizure and they realize that the EM fields are affecting, you know, all of the 
all the patients because there's just it's so dark and there are only very few light sources and there's a lot of camera movement and I mean I'd love to know if if Renee is 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 this the scene that Renee hated to film you know mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's it was such a it's such an important scene but it just seems to be lost just in terms of um, the the lack of of quality uh, clarity in the in the filmmaking process. That being said, though, I mean, I, I, I do give this episode a lot of passes just because it it brings up some great morals and meanings and messages, and we'll get to those in a second. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that still kind of plagues me a little bit with, well, again, the contrivance of being in Star Trek is that you never really feel that they're struggling with what has uh, what has happened with this culture, what's going on with this culture from a spiritual side, yeah. right? There's, there's no spirituality per se in this society that has suffered this blight for 200 years, right? Whereas, I mean, you would think that certain belief systems would have come to the forefront, like literally like the, like a death religion cult, mm. right? Or something that tries to fight the the disparity of what's going to happen and make you celebrate the moments that you're living, right? Instead yeah. of looking forward to death, why not celebrate the moments of life right. that you have? And I will right. get to that in Morals, Meanings, and Messages. All right. Well, so look, let me try to redeem it then because, I, like I said, I'm aware that this is a favorite. It is a popular episode. It is a well-done episode, even though I don't think it works as a production I do think the morals, meanings, messages here are important. I think they're wonderful, and and I think they're very Star Trek in my book. Norman, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna sort of mosey right around your condemnation of uh, the hubris on display. <laughs> I feel like I've talked about that. Uh, I I don't think you're wrong, but it isn't. That's not necessarily the thing that I'm going to be left with when I think about this episode in retrospect. The thing that I think about with this episode is that at the end of the day, it is a plea to care about tomorrow. Whatever the circumstance, however bad things may be, we literally just have to care that we can make someone else's life better tomorrow. Even if we're not the beneficiary, keep trying. So Bashir does, even beyond the end of this episode. That is a very Picard thing to see. And he says it, you know, Picard says, look, if you fail to negotiate or fail to come to a, a, a compromise, you negotiate again. You keep negotiating. You keep doing it. That is what Bashir is doing here. He he failed with the initial objective, but he's back on DS9, back in front of that computer, and he's just going to keep going until he can help these people because he knows that it's what's right to do. Now, some advancements, some good causes, they aren't always about you. They might benefit someone down the road who didn't even know it. Bashir uses this opportunity to give someone else the ability to give yet someone else hope. That is an absolutely beautiful thing. That is the the golden sort of Star Trek message in this is that he is on his way to building a better future for these other people. 
He's not from there. He doesn't know them. They don't owe him anything. He's on the other side of the wormhole. But those kids are going to grow up in a world where they actually get to have a future. That's what it's all about. On the flip side of that... (laughs) Boom! (laughs) (laughs) You know, John, I I think that... I, I agree. I mean, I think that is definitely a message that you can come away with, you know, when you're looking at uh, the, the aspect of seeing this through the Star Trek lens of humanity trying to become better and to do better through their efforts, through our efforts. But at the same time, though, and and maybe it's me, it just when I watched it or or what I hold doctors to as a certain standard, there is something about Bashir still that I want to see change a little bit, and that's just his kind of cavalier way about strolling into a, search, a situation where he says that I'm a doctor and that actually means something to people, right? Because, again, this is a culture that they've never met. This is, these are people that are suffering, and all of a sudden he's like, well, I'm a doctor. I can take care of this. I can take care of this in the week. I can guarantee you I can do this in days. I did it before. I can do it again. At what cost? And at whose? Right. And I think that it's not necessarily those are uh, mutually exclusive because he in and of himself also suffers certain consequences. Pride goeth before fall is is the message that I take from this in, in a certain respect, because sometimes doctors have to come into a situation and treat the person and not the symptoms. They have to treat the people, the body and not the the disease. You know, doctors are healers, and healers don't necessarily have to use technology or medicine or science to heal. They have to use faith. They have to use love. They have to use care and compassion. I'm not saying that those are mutually exclusive, but if one doesn't work, the other has to. And this is where uh, Trevan and Bashir are at odds because he doesn't have the science. Bashir has the science. So all he has is compassion. And that's all that's working. So. I wish they could have worked more together or at least reached a a common ground. And they kind of did at the end. But when you have a doctor like Bashir who kind of strolls in, like I said, and he's, I know I'm probably going to get a lot of mail for this, but (laughs) until I see something differently, he is the doctor that prides himself on a win loss ratio. I won this. I defeated that. I cured that. This is my resume of why I'm right. But all of those factors do not factor into the next diagnosis. They're all different. So what happens when he uh, exercises his influence across a bunch of people that may or may not want his help? It's his pride that forces that on them. And I'm glad that he did learn something at the end. But again, the, the reality is, is that somewhere in between, it's the person who's suffering that suffers more or suffers differently. And that's something that I think as a doctor, he still needs to address. It's not just the cure. It's the person who's suffering to get to the cure. And sometimes the cure isn't science. The cure is compassion. And that's all they want. But I do like that they resolve the fact that there's this thing called death to comes to everyone eventually. It's true. And we try and cheat it. And with technology, and if I may coin a phrase, if I, I haven't done this in a while, so this is for our Patreon listeners especially. We try to unnaturally cheat death and pat ourselves on the back for our ingenuity. 
Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you'll find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam. Shabam. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Body Parts. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. What do you get when you cross Kukalaka with a Palaku? Whatever it is, odds are that it's both inedible and unpronounceable. And transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.